Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to our, it's our fifth apologetics class, or so about halfway through. Um, before we get started tonight, just want to open up in a word of prayer real quick. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today, and we thank you for this day, Lord. Uh, please, Lord, just bless our time together. Uh, help us to uh, see the truth in uh, the eyewitness accounts of you and your life and your death, burial, and resurrection, Lord. Help us just to be strengthened in our faith and help us to just be encouraged to go out and to share the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So one of the things, because we kind of have gone through the nature of truth, and then we talked about how we got the New Testament last week. Uh, now we're kind of getting into the evidence for the resurrection. Uh, one of the things that always kind of makes organizing and planning a teaching on the evidences for the resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament um, it's that makes it difficult isn't the lack of information rather kind of the wealth of information and there's just so much scholarship and like these these rabbit holes and niches that you can go down um, that sometimes like a big broad overview can you know organizing it getting your thoughts together like as the person <laughs> planning it um, but uh, I so I uh, but I encourage you we're going to kind of try to do a broader it's going to be more of a broader overview and you can like I said, there's a lot of people who have done a lot of like very niche-specific scholarship on all kinds of things. Um, and if you're interested in anything particular, come talk to me. I can maybe point you towards some books or something. Uh, but it's there's there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, so uh, I say this one as a as an assurance, just to the wealth of historical fact that that backs our faith. Um, so for the purpose of this class, and then. Uh, for our next class, uh, we're going to kind of focus on three main questions. Uh, the, the two questions we're going to kind of deal with tonight is going to be, um, one, does the New Testament claim to be eyewitness testimony? And then uh, the second question is, are there details in the New Testament texts that help us support the eyewitness accounts? Um, because there's some people who will make claims, well, you know, it's not actually eyewitness accounts. They never claim to be. It's, you know, they or they pivot to like Jesus not actually having a bodily resurrection. It's uh, this kind of spiritual thing. And there's just people who outright deny any of the truths that are within the New Testament. So um, first, the first question is, well, is the do the authors of the New Testament claim that they have eyewitness testimony? Okay. So Peter, Paul, and John all claim to be direct eyewitnesses of the resurrection. We're going to go in some verses here in a minute. Also, in several of the cases that we'll go through, you'll see not only are they claiming that they themselves are eyewitnesses, but also they're claiming that the crowds and to the people to which they're speaking are eyewitnesses as well. Um, because they don't just say, as I witnessed, they'll say, as we witnessed talking in a third person directly to the crowds. Um, additionally, it's interesting to think about the apostles' bold claims of witnessing the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and everything they claim, considering the punishment that was often entailed in the Jewish culture for bringing false witness, especially oftentimes um, when it pertained to the, you know, bringing false witness against people for, for killing somebody or in, in the nature of a, like a murder, um, oftentimes they could be subject to the death penalty as well. 
So um, in the Jewish culture, bearing false witness was, was not something that was done lightly. And they're standing in boldness doing this. So the first um, verse I'm going to go to is Acts 2.32. And this is Peter's sermon at Pentecost, um, where we know that he was speaking to at least 3,000 people. And we can get that from the text because the text says 3,000 people were saved that day. So at least 3,000 people heard what he was saying. And I'll go ahead and quote. It says, This Jesus God raised up, and of all that we and that we all are witnesses. Okay. So he's not just saying that I witnessed the being raised up of Jesus. I witnessed the resurrection. He's saying we all witnessed. And again, he's speaking to the crowds. Not only is he speaking to the crowds, he's speaking in Jerusalem on Pentecost, which if you follow your timeline is approximately, you know, maybe 45, 50 days after the, the resurrection of Christ. Okay, so within a short time frame, he's sitting there saying he preaches a sermon that we just, you know, we talked about and went over um, with, uh, in church on Sunday. And he's sitting there saying, we all witnessed this. And indeed, it was a very short time frame after the resurrection of Christ that he's, that he's claiming this. And you don't hear anybody, there's no account of people sitting there saying, well, no, we didn't see that, or you're making that up, right? Another point is Acts 3.15. Here we see Peter and John, after healing a lame man, going up to the, the temple. And there's a, there a big crowd, and they're astonished at what they did. And in Solomon's colonnade, uh, Peter stands up and gives an address, and he says, in three, Acts 3.15, he says, And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Acts 4.18-20. Here, Peter and John are brought before the Jewish leadership on the tales of what they just said in the temple and the healing of the man. In Acts 3.15, they're brought before the, the Jewish leadership and they're told not to speak in the name of Jesus. And so, so they called them and charged them not to speak. They're, this is the, the council charging and telling Peter and John not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them saying, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Again, speaking of what they had seen and heard Jesus say, but also his resurrection as well. Acts 5, 30 to 32, um, prior to this, the apostles are performing signs and wonders. And they are miraculously freed from a jail. The, the angel of the Lord comes. Uh, they're told to preach again in the temple by the angel and are brought before the Sanhedrin. Peter and the apostles are giving their defense. And in this, they say, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. So one, not only are they accusing the Sanhedrin of killing Jesus, right? And they aren't, they, as I said before, oftentimes in cases of, of putting people to death, if you bear false witness, then you're often subject to the same penalty, but um, 
that's not what they're trying to do here because they're they're not saying they're going no we didn't kill him they don't they don't deny the fact and again he says we are all witnesses of these things another one acts 10 39 to 40. here peter has a vision and went to go meet a Gentile and a Roman centurion named Cornelius. While preaching to Cornelius and the people in his household, Peter says, And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. So now, very clearly we can see, even just in these first five uh, verses and acts that we're reviewing that they're making direct claims to be witnesses. Not only are they making claims that they were witnesses, they're making claims in several of them to the crowds and the other people they're addressing that they, in fact, too, were witnesses. Now, these all come from Acts, and there are several others we'll look at that come elsewhere in the New Testament as well. But I just wanted to make a quick note about the fact that we're going to look at how we can trust Luke because Luke wrote Acts. Um, and also, too, um, I, I just wanted to, to make sure that you understood that we're going to be addressing this. This first question is their eyewitness accounts, but then also uh, the next question is going to be, well, how can we trust? How can we trust Luke? How can we trust Luke and Acts? So we'll move away from, from the book of Acts and we'll look at uh, some of one of Paul's claims. Okay, and this is probably, to me, this is one of the most profound and some people actually say that this was kind of a, an early, probably an early confession within the church. Um, and this is uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8. So here Paul makes explicit claims to seeing the risen Lord. Additionally, Paul mentions several people directly by name, almost charging his readers to go and ask them directly for their, for their eyewitness testimony. But that's not all. Paul says that the risen Jesus then appeared to 500 other individuals and makes it a point to say most of them are still living. I'll go ahead and read it real quick for you. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8 reads, For I deliver to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, then the twelve, speaking of the twelve apostles or disciples, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. That's Paul talking. So it's important to note, because the claims of Jesus' resurrection have been going around within the lifetime of the people that he is talking about, right? He makes it a point to draw out that many of them are still alive. And so <clears throat> if the Christian claims of the resurrection were false, then the living people from that time very easily could have shot down the Christian claims, right? So Paul's sitting here, he's naming people. He's saying there's 500 people that saw him, that Jesus appeared to 500 other people. Very easily, the, the Christian account could have been disproven or dis dispelled. Also, to think about too, if the tomb was not empty, 
They could have easily dispelled the Christian claims by showing everyone that the body was still in the tomb. However, historically speaking, we don't have any of this whole categorical denial of the empty tomb or the risen sightings of Jesus to, to hundreds. Um, we have none of that. We, have, we do have claims from the early Jewish critics that try to explain away the claims of Christianity, and we'll look at some of those in a future class, but the point, the point of their disputes that they say, they don't ever say, nobody saw Jesus risen from the dead. They don't say, well, the, temple, or the, the, the tomb still has the body in it. They, they make counterclaims, but all those counterclaims actually affirm the fact that people saw him risen and that the tomb was empty. Like they'll say like, well, the, his disciples stole the body. Well, they're in saying that, the, the Jews saying that, they're, they're actually affirming that the tomb was empty, right? And they, there's other things that they say to try to account for the appearances of Jesus. But in doing so, they're actually affirming the tomb is empty and a bunch of people saw a risen Jesus, okay? So that's one of the, to me, it's one of the most, uh, the profound ones for me. So I'm going to go through a couple more uh, ones that directly attest to being witnesses, right? So we have a couple in Peter. So as I said, Peter, Peter, John, and Paul all claim directly to have seen the risen Lord. Like I said, Paul just sat there and laid out several people. Uh, so 1 Peter 5.1 reads, So I exhort the elders among you, as, for, as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Okay, that's Peter writing. John writes in John 19, to 35, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. And that's oftentimes John speaks of himself kind of in that third person. So he's speaking of himself. He who saw it has borne witness. He's speaking of himself. 1 John 1, 1 to 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, Jesus. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to the Proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has made manifest to us. Again, John very clearly saying, We saw Jesus. We saw what he did with our eyes. We touched it with our hands. Okay. There's there's no there's no mistake in that that Peter and John and Paul and their writings are claiming, very explicitly claiming that they saw the resurrect, resurrected Christ and the things that he accomplished. And now in addition to these like direct claims by those three of being direct eyewitnesses, we also have uh, the writer of Luke <clears throat> and the writer of Hebrews 
claiming to be informed by or have direct access to eyewitnesses. Because most people will, when they talk about like, like Luke and what he did, most people would say, because he, he addresses Theodophilus in his writings, and so he, he speaks of giving an accurate account, right? So very, at the beginning, it seems that Luke, is, his aim is to give an actual historical record of what, what, what went on. And it seems that he was commissioned or paid. Um, most people kind of speculate maybe Theodophilus was some kind of uh, wealthy Roman person that wanted to get at the truth of, of Christ and, and find out what was going on. So, but Luke had direct eyewitness accounts. He had access to direct eyewitnesses. Because remember, Luke was Paul's kind of his um, protege, if you will. And so he, he directly witnessed the, most likely directly witnesses the happenings within Acts. But he also had direct access to people who saw the, because we don't know for sure if Luke saw the resurrection himself, but he definitely makes claims that he had access to eyewitnesses of these facts in the resurrection. So Luke says in Luke 1, 1 to 2, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So he's saying he has had access to these eyewitnesses. Now the writer of Hebrews, um, and if you didn't know, there's a debate about who wrote Hebrews. Some people think it's Paul, but um, I digress. But So we don't know exactly who wrote Hebrews, but they make a direct claim uh, to having access to eyewitnesses and having seen this. So Hebrews 2, 3 to 4 says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed among according to his will. So in short, Paul, Peter, and John all claimed to be eyewitnesses. And Luke and the writer of Hebrews claimed to be informed by eyewitnesses. In addition, the New Testament writers name others, directly name others who saw the resurrection. Paul specifically lists 14 people and gives direct names of who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. The 12 apostles, we just read this in Corinthians, the 12 apostles, James, and himself, and claims again that there was more than 500 others. And Matthew and Luke, we didn't look at look directly at any verses in Matthew, but Matthew and Luke confirm the appearances of, the, of Jesus to the apostles. And all four gospels mention additional women witnesses, giving, mar, marking them by name. Mark identifies Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. Luke adds Joanna. That is four, four more named witnesses, explicitly named witnesses. Acts 1 also reveals that Joseph, called Barsabbas, was an eyewitness as well. Okay. Again, all these named people could have easily refuted the claims of a risen Christ, and anybody could have gone and asked these people. They could have, the, the claims of the early church could have easily been shut down 
because they're making they're saying these people saw it and if they didn't see it one they wouldn't probably wouldn't bear false witness and lie about it because there was nothing for them to gain so they could have easily gone to them and the whole thing could have been dispelled also anyone reading the letters as i said could have just gone straight to straight to these people and asked them additionally we have numerous accounts of peter paul and the other apostles risking their lives to proclaim boldly the resurrection of Christ. The risk the apostles took in providing their eyewitness testimony definitely seems to suggest that they were telling the truth. Again, they had, they had nothing to gain. Their unwavering testimony and challenges to the Jewish leadership, including the Jewish king Agrippa himself, demonstrates that they were eyewitnesses who believed Jesus rose from the dead. So we can very category we can see that the New Testament writers are directly saying that they they were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ and they boldly proclaimed it. So it leads us to our next question. So are there details in the text that help show the New Testament writers were actually eyewitnesses? Okay. Do they give details that only eyewitnesses could provide? So let's do a little little thought experiment here. So Imagine someone wrote a book about your hometown in the 1980s, okay, or let's 1980 specifically the year. So in, in this book, they describe your hometown as they knew it in that year. In the book, the author accurately describes your town's politicians, its unique laws and penal code, the local industry, local weather patterns, local slang or usage of language, the town roads and geography, it's unusual topography, local houses of worship, area hotels, town statues and sculptures, the depth of the water in the town harbor, and numerous other unique de details about your town that year. So the question comes, if somebody wrote a book from your hometown in the 1980s and included all those things and you read it, would you think that this author had visited your town that year or had gotten good information from other eyewitnesses from that time? And the answer is, of course you would, because he provides details that only an eyewitness to, can provide. This is the type of testimony that we have throughout much of the New Testament, okay? And I'm gonna, I debated bring, bringing this up, but there's, so there's this term called anachronisms, okay? And oftentimes, if you have somebody who is writing about something completely removed from it, they, they write in things that didn't actually exist at the time. This is something people do like with the, the Book of Mormon and all the stories that's within that. Like there's all these like what they call anachronisms. Like they talk about like pigs being with the Native Americans, you know, three, 4,000 years ago. Okay, well, pigs were brought over after, you know, the colonization of the, the New World. So that's an anachronism, okay? Because it's something that wasn't, present at that time, or it'd be like, if I was writing a story about Abraham Lincoln, and I talked about how Abraham Lincoln hopped in his car, and, you know, drove to the White House, that's kind of a hyperbolic example, but that's, that would be an example of an anachronism. The thing is, is that we don't, they don't have, there's no anachronisms within the, the New Testament writings. It's because they're actual eyewitnesses, and that's, it's super, it's really, really easy to, to, do something anachronistic when you're completely removed from it and you don't have intimate eyewitness knowledge of what's going on, okay? So Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts, 
includes the most eyewitness details. This will tie back into what I mentioned earlier about how we can trust acts in, their, in all the claims of being eyewitnesses. So in the second half of Acts, for example, Luke displays an incredible array of knowledge of local places, names, environmental conditions, customs, and circumstances that befit only an eyewitness contemporary of the times and the events. So Luke describes things that only an eyewitness of the same place and time could describe. There's a scholar and a historian, and if you want to look, you can actually Google it and you can see all these. Uh, his name is Colin, C-O-L-I-N, Hemmer, H-E-M-E-R, who chronicled Luke's account in the book of Acts verse by verse. And in great detail, he identifies 84 facts in the la just in the last 16 chapter chapters of Acts that have been confirmed by historical and archaeological research. Um, I'll read a few of them here, but I encourage you, if you're interested, go look them up. Uh, but these are, these are 85, 84 facts that, that only really an eyewitness or somebody contemporaneous with the time would have been able to, to accurately describe. So in Acts 13 to 45, Luke accurately records the natural crossing between uh, correct, correctly named ports. 1313, uh, the proper port Perga um, along the direct destination of a ship crossing from Cyprus. The proper location of Lyconia, the unusual but correct conjugation or declension of the name Lystra, which shows that he had access to the people who were actually from the area at the time. The correct language spoken in Lystra and Lyconia. The right location of the river Gen Gengitis from near Philippi. The proper port Attilia, which, uh, which returns travelers, returning travelers would use. The correct corridor or the correct order of a of approach to Derby, and then Lystra from the Silician Gates, the proper form of the, of the name Freos, the place of conspicuous sailors, landmarks, Samothrace. Now this, so these are, again, these are all things that were kind of like, okay, like I have never heard of this. Yeah, because you weren't, an <laughs> you weren't an eyewitness. You didn't have intimate knowledge of actually these places, the ways that things were spoken um, the way that things pronounce, and that's only 10. There's 84 of them in just the last 16 chapters of Acts. In response to these overwhelming facts, Roman historian A.N. Shuren Wright says, For Acts, the confirmation of historicity is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject its basic historicity or historical accuracy must now appear absurd. William R. Ramsey, another scholar and historian, began his investigation into Acts with great skepticism. He writes, or, but what he discovered helped him to change his mind, and he writes, I began with a mind unfavorable to Acts. It did not lie then in my line of life to investigate the subject minutely, but more recently I found myself often brought into contact with the book of Acts as an authority for topography, antiquities, and society of Asia Minor, which is where Paul conducted his missionary journeys. It was gradually borne in upon me that in various details, the narrative showed marvelous truth. This is somebody who began investigating Acts as a, as a skeptic. Now, John's Gospels, 
Uh, there's been, just like the gentleman, I'm sorry, I'm going to butcher his name, uh, Colin Hemmer had, came with his list of 84. There's been other people who have identified in the Gospel of John 59 facts that attest to the eyewitness nature of, of his account. So just by looking at the narrative writings of John and Luke, we can identify over 140 authentic historical eyewitness details, not even taking into account the other historical details of the other books of the New Testament. We have established the historical accuracy of the basic New Testament story, okay, i.e. the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in the history of the early church. So let's say hypothetically, <clears throat> we can only know that the Gospel of John, the Gospel of Luke, and Acts are the only historically authoritative books in the New Testament, hypothetically, right? Even if we just had those three books, we would have all the essentials of the Christian faith, the early church, Jesus's life, his teachings, his resurrection, okay? But that's not all. The New Testament writers name over 30 historical leaders who have been confirmed as historical by archaeological or non-Christian sources. Again, going back to like what we talked about before, the explicitly naming of people, there could have been easily refutation of the claims by going and asking these people or talking to these people or these, the writings of these people could have very clearly said, you know, this didn't happen. These, these, these people in positions of power could have easily written and said, well, you know, the, Christ, the early Christians, they're, they're making this stuff up. But we don't have that. So not only does this support the fact that the writers had access to eyewitnesses to the accounts by which they wrote, but also the entire Christian narrative, like I said, could have been dispelled by going and asking these historical figures or they themselves could have written on it. So there's 30 of them. I'm going to just name a couple. Um, one, anybody who says that Jesus wasn't a historical person, they they need to quit watching Zeitgeist or whatever. But um, So... Jesus, he's not only named in the New Testament, he's named by Josephus, who's an ancient Jewish historian, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, Pelagian, Talus, Centurionus, Lucian, Celsus, Marabar, Serapion, and the Jewish Talmud even mentions Jesus. Right? I'm just going to read. A, I'm just going to read a couple of these because there's 30 of them. Um, King Agrippa I, he was at, mentioned in Acts 12, 1 to 24. Philo and Josephus mention him. Agrippa II, we have archaeological evidence of coins, and Josephus mentions him as well. Um, Caiaphas, we have several citations. Um, we have uh, Josephus mentioned Caiaphas. Additionally, we actually, um, there was an archaeological dig where they found, like, it was to, they used to like collect the bones in a burial box. They actually found what they think is the actual burial box of Caiaphas, the Caiaphas um, that's mentioned throughout, you know, as the head, the head of the Sanhedrin. Um, Felix, who Paul um, is speaking to in Acts 23 uh, to 25, that's mentioned by Tacitus and Josephus. Um, Herod the Great's mentioned by Tacitus, Josephus. Um, Pilate, we have inscriptions, we have coins with, with Pilate's face on it. Josephus writes about him, Philo writes about him, Tacitus writes about him. Um, and that's just, that's just a handful of these. So we, not only 
again, not only do we have the, the people directly named, but in the, in the New Testament, but we have external evidence that we know these were real people. And why, why would any, if you were trying to manufacture something, why would you directly list out people who could, you could go ask and they could simply deny what you're saying if you were manufacturing something, right? So we can trust the New Testament in the fact that it is giving eyewitness accounts and really it meets all tests for what you call historical accuracy. Um, there's, and that's why you'll see, you know, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but the, cl the, the claims of the New Testament, the historical claims of the New Testament are affirmed by even secular scholars. Now they try to, because they, they, there's a refusal to embrace miracles, right? So they try to come up with other, um, I'm trying to think, scientific ways of explaining for it or whatever. And there's a guy named David Hume, who a lot of people rely on his argumentation, uh, which I didn't go into Hume um, when we talked about truth earlier, but um, Hume's arguments are very cyclical. They're self-defeating, and also they, um, his, his, what do you call his presupposition? He's out. If I say, if I'm trying, if I'm search if I say I'm searching for the truth, but I immediately exclude one of the options, I'm not going to come to the conclusion of the option. Like if I come home and I see there's cookies out of the cookie jar and I go, Elijah would never steal cookies out of the cookie jar. Well, I'm not going to, in my investigation, I'm going to automatically exclude Eli from stealing the cookies from the cookie jar. So that's something that Hume does. And these other scholars, they immediately say, well, miracles are impossible. And they like, try to figure out a way to argue for saying miracles are impossible without actually embracing the idea that they are possible. Um, but all that rest in the fact that the, the historical accuracy of the New Testament is sound. Secular scholars themselves attest to it. They just try to come up with you know, non-miraculous ways of how to account for, you know, 600 plus people seeing a risen Jesus. And we'll, we'll talk about that, uh, not this time, but in the coming, the one after that probably. So, uh, so that's going to conclude for today. Next week, um, like I said, there's, uh, there's all kinds of different evidences you can go into. Uh, some of the, I'm going to kind of just compile like a list of some of the top ones, I think that are compelling to show that we can, we've illustrated that we can trust the new, the historicity of the New Testament, I feel like, but also like, well, why can we trust, why can we trust exactly what they say? Not just the historical claims, but also the other claims that they're making. Um, so that's what we'll look at next week. And then uh, we'll look at after the week after that, kind of how do we approach or how do we give answers to or look at some of the skeptical claims of that they try to do to explain away the truth of the new testament so um that's all i have if there's questions i was going to take questions and go ahead and pray yes oftentimes when you talk with someone they'll, the answer will simply be well that's, that's your book that's the bible i don't i don't believe in the bible mm -hmm. and so what's what's a, a quick answer for someone that you know you talk about historicity here but like what is a quick answer that would maybe come back and say, well, that's wrong. Yeah. Based on the authenticity and how, how many texts are there? Yeah. Um, the, uh, the question was, is that like when we talk about the Bible, people it's like, well, that's your book. It's, you know, that's for you. 
but how do you get them to understand and see uh, that, you know, the truth in it, in the text? Um, I've, I'm trying to, I've had a couple conversations with people and I can remember like just drilling and telling them that, you know, well, it's eyewitness accounts. And then I'll be like, and even sources, well, it's like, okay, well, guess what? You still have to deal with the extra biblical sources that speak to it. You know, Jose, because there's all this other stuff like Josephus writes about Jesus and talks about his miracles in there. You know, the, the Babylonian Talmud, um, they say that Jesus was, was a was a sorcerer, right? But, well, that just confirms that he did miraculous things. Like we talked about, like, so one of the things is, is like, well, it's it's eyewitness. You know, it's, it's history. So are you going to just discount history? But also, too, then, okay, even if you threw the Bible out, how are you going to address all these other writers that talk about that talk about Jesus and the things that he did in his miraculous things. So it's not, you know, so it's, it's not just the Bible that speaks to it. So thank you. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And when they opened the stone back up, he wasn't there. Yeah. So, but there wasn't a witness that tied the two things together of what may have taken place between God and resurrection. Um, so the question, the question was, is that they, they, after they sealed him in, there was nobody that actually physically witnessed like his body leaving the the tomb okay well it's like <clears throat> so you might it's you know we have to if we do some like deductive thinking about it right so it's like okay we know that he was we know he was dead anybody there's like competing theories they call it like the swoon theory and we'll kind of talk about that uh, but basically like he was on the cross and he kind of feigned dying and when they put him in, he wasn't actually dead. Well, that completely discounts Roman crucifixion and the fact that, well, if you didn't, if you failed to kill the prisoner, you yourself would die. All these things, the brutality of it, not only, but also the fact that he was, he wasn't just crucified, he was flogged, which flogging in and of itself would be enough to kill somebody, the type of flogging that they gave him. So we know, I mean, we know he was, the fact that he had the spear in the side, the water, the water and the blood, like that's, he was likely in shock from blood loss and he had fluid filled around his heart and that's why there was water and blood. So like we know he was dead. So that's a, that's an established fact, right? We also know that people saw him alive. So there was, even if we didn't directly, I mean, we have an account because they, they come and the angel speaks to the, to the women and says, he's not here, he's risen. So it, it's, we can like, wonder about like, well, how did it happen or how was it risen? But the, you can't discount the, in, in not knowing that, that in the middle piece, you can't discount the fact that, well, then we know he was dead and now people have seen him alive. 
the how of how that happened is a miraculous thing. We don't fully understand it, but you, you can, you, somebody can sit there and go, well, we didn't see him raised from the dead. Well, you know, he was dead and the people saw him alive. So something happened and you have to, you, you know, you can't just sit there and go, nope, I don't believe it because we didn't, we don't have a, an eyewitness account of what happened in the tomb. Like we, you can't, you can't sit there and just like, you're not being honest to yourself if you're just going to sit there and like, well, yeah, well, a faith that, well, something miraculous did happen, but even I would say on a, on a, because here's what secular historians will sit there and say um, that they affirm that these people saw something that they thought was the resurrected Jesus. There's competing, there's like ideas of like, you know, shared hallucinations of like everybody that saw them, they all had like one hallucination, which doesn't happen. Or that like somehow there was like a lookalike Jesus or, so, you know, like all And we're going to talk about some of these. But the, the fact is, is that we know he died. People saw him. Even secular scholars will be like hundreds of people think that they saw the resurrected Jesus. How do you explain it? And that's something we'll get into, not this time, but the next time, kind of talking about, well, the, the points that they bring up, they might check one little, they might check a box, but they fail to account for all these other historical facts over here. You know, oh, he, oh, he was just faking. Okay, well, you don't know anything about Roman crucifixion then. Also, how would <clears throat> following a Roman crucifixion, even if you did live, I doubt the person that survived that would walk around going like, I just raised from the dead and I'm your savior and leader. And they'd be like, yeah, let's follow that guy. No, it'd be like, you know, you'd think about it. Like, you know, three days after, it doesn't make sense. So we'll kind of, there's these historical facts that historians will affirm, secular historians will affirm, and they try to explain it away, but they, they fail to take into account the whole entire picture. Of, of the resurrection and all the historical facts that we have. So, but yes, thank you for the question, sir. Any other questions? Okay, we'll go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord. Uh, we just thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that uh, you're not a God who is just, you know, up in space somewhere or something like that, but you're a God who came down uh, to earth and lived our life and that we know and we can look and we can study and see the truth in that and the truth that you you were here that you lived you died and you raised from the dead and we thank you that we can just we can know not even just with our hearts but with our minds that these are that these things are true lord and what that means for us what that means for us in following you and our resurrection and the in the the new creation what that means and we get to be with you forever lord it's such an amazing thing and we just thank you for the truth of your word we thank you for the truth of our faith and let's pray that um, as we continue it's encouraging to uh, to everyone in this class in jesus name we pray amen